Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. Oh, no, mate. Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Deborah Sampson. We've got a bit of American revolutionary history to get through here today. Deborah Sampson was a woman who fought in the American Revolutionary War on the side of the Patriots at a time when women, of course, were not allowed to fight in the army. Very interesting story, this one. It sheds a, quite an interesting light on a lot of the issues that were going uh, going on at this time uh, in during American history. So let's get to it and have a talk about Deborah Sampson and uh, what she got up to while fighting on behalf of the Patriots. Now, we're going to go back to when she was born in 1760. She's born on the 17th of December, 1760, 15 years before the Battle of Lexington and Concord, which is, of course, when the whole Revolutionary War uh, kicked off. She's born in a town called Plimpton in Massachusetts. It's about 60 kilometres south of Boston. And she's the fifth of seven children. And her family, unfortunately for her, are not particularly wealthy. Her dad is a bloke named Jonathan. Uh, obviously, he's not thrilled with this. Doesn't like having a lot of kids and not very much money. Uh, and so he actually buggers off before Deborah's even turned 10. He, he, he runs away and abandons the family and essentially just leaves them to you know rot. And Very, very unfortunate indeed. And obviously this leaves uh, Deborah and her siblings and her mum, who was also called Deborah, uh, up a certain creek without the proverbial paddle here. Now, old Jono, her dad again, uh, gets some mates to spin some rubbish to uh, his family about having been lost at sea, while meanwhile he moves to Maine and knocks up some other bird named Martha. So it seems like this bloke, number one, can't learn his lesson, and two, can't keep it in his pants, but whatever, he doesn't come into the story too much, thankfully. So after this good-for-nothing wanker, Jono has left the family in the lurch. Uh, Deborah Senior, the, the mum of Deborah Sampson, isn't able to look after her seven kids, and so unfortunately she has to foist them off onto others in the area. Now this sounds pretty cold, but it actually wasn't that weird, as it happened a fair bit back in those days when people were too poor to look after their own kids, they got sent to relatives or to mates instead. So our young Deborah, she ends up living with some relatives, but then that all you know goes to hell when her mum dies and she becomes effectively an orphan because her dad isn't around anymore. So she's sent off instead to live with an old widow at this point, and this old lady teaches young Debbie how to read, which isn't a privilege that all women enjoyed in those times, so she's, she's actually quite lucky in that regard she, that she ends up being literate. But of course, this doesn't last because, uh, unfortunately, this widow, who's in her 80s, dies in 1770. And now poor old Deborah is sent to live as an indentured servant. Indentured servitude was a system for people to pay off debts and the like by working for someone for a fixed period of time until their debt was paid off. This practice was extremely common in colonial America, and it was uh, usually most commonly used as, as a way for emigrants to get to the Americas without any cash. They'd indenture themselves to the master of a ship who took them, and then the master would sell them, uh, sell the indenture to someone else after they arrived. Anyway, for our mate Deborah, it's a little bit different as she's an orphan paying her way with an indenture, and that means that she's stuck as a servant for this bloke, Jeremy. Thomas and his family for the next eight years. Records indicate that she was treated well enough by this bloke, but he refused to let her go to school as he's got a few rocks in his head and didn't believe in the education of women. Now, this doesn't put our mate Debbie off, however, as she mucks about with Jess's kids and does their homework and all that sort of stuff with them and continues to educate herself despite being forbidden from going to school. So this pretty clearly and pretty early on indicated that Deborah really isn't going to take too much rubbish when it comes to stuff that she's not supposed to do, which is, of course... You know, it, this is going to become a running theme for her in the future. And this isn't the only way that Jeremiah influences Deborah when it comes to going uh, against the grain. 
because his head here, it, it doesn't just have rocks in it, in fairness. He's backing what, what will go on to be the winning horse in the revolution, as he's a huge fan of the Patriots and didn't care who knew it. Now, Deborah was very strongly influenced by this bloke's opinions, and she also develops a strong sense of support for the revolution pretty bloody early on. She continues with this process of self-education until her period of servitude ends in 1778. And this enables her to work as a school teacher uh, for, for a lot of the time until 1780. She also worked as a weaver and uh, is said to be pretty bloody good at it as well. So while not being a, you know, a sort of rags to riches, Jay-Z owning a basketball team uh, type situation, our Debbie Duncomer, and, uh, and she did all right for herself too. But this wasn't enough for her. Deborah had been fascinated with the Revolutionary War since it kicked off in Lexington and Concord when she was 14. And she started to think of ways that she could join the fighting after old Jeremiah had convinced her of the importance of the Revolution. Now, obviously, at the time, women were not allowed anywhere near the army. And uh, and so Deborah didn't really have the chance of going along, you know, in a nice dress and asking to be allowed to shoot these bastard loyalists. But she is nonetheless keen as mustard to get amongst it, however, and uh, she wants to go out and crack some redcoat skulls, and she doesn't see why she shouldn't be allowed to take part. So she comes up with a plan to pose as a man and join the Continental Army that way. Now, how was she able to do this, you might ask? Well, Deborah was a very large lady. She was 175 centimetres tall, or 5 feet 9 inches. Now, this not might sound like much these days, but 200 years ago, the average height for a bloke was only 167 centimetres, so she actually towered over most of the men that, uh, that you know, back then. On top of that, she was built. She was a bit. She was a, a fair unit, I have to say. She was strong as an ox, and unfortunately for her, I guess she wasn't much of a looker, according to people who knew her back then. That's what they said about her, anyway. And all these things helped tricking people into thinking that she was, you know, she was a bloke. She's huge. She's kind of ugly. So you know, pretty much just looking like a, a regular dude, anyway. So with her, you know, less than typically feminine build, she wove herself the cloth that she needed for a man's suit. She spent uh, spent a while dressing up as a fella and, and practicing, I don't know, farting and swearing and picking her nose until she felt confident that she was able to pass for a, you know, for a, for a man there. And with her feeling comfortable that she can, uh, she can get away with this, she goes off with everything else uh, in readiness to join the army. And in 1782, at the age of 21, she goes off and has a crack at signing up. And so it's at some point in late 1781 or early 1782, we're not exactly sure when, that Deborah goes off to Middleborough, where, which is just down the road from Plimpton, to sign up with the Patriot Army. She dresses herself up in the suit that she's uh, snagged for herself and pops on the hat and the shoes that she's bought, and presumably there is also a strategically placed sock involved as well. And she signs up under the name Timothy Thayer, no worries, and is given orders to meet up with her company in the coming days. But oh no, what's this? Someone has recognised her while she's at the enlistment station and dobs her in like an absolute mongrel. She gets investigated, she gets busted, and she chucks out, she gets chucked out on her ass before she's even joined up with her company. And she's also tragically booted, booted out of her church as well, which is pretty, pretty bloody ridiculous, to be honest, but not to be put off. Young Deborah, she goes off to another enlistment station sometime later in May 1782, and she has another crack at it. This time, she's in Uxbridge, which is a quite a hike from Plimpton and Middlesbrough, and so she signs up without any issues at all. Second time lucky. She gives her name this time as Robert Shirtliffe. I don't know why she's not picking more normal names. For bloody hell, Deb, get your get it together, mate. What's wrong with John Smith? Anyway, she's sent off 
with the Light Infantry Company of the 4th Massachusetts Regiment, along with 50 or 60 other soldiers, and she is in like Flint. She is burping and farting and sniffing her fingers after scratching her sock and all the rest of it, so she's fitting in very, very well indeed. By the way, joining a Light Infantry Company is not, it's no joke, it's really no joke. They were usually made up of the biggest and the strongest blokes around and tasked with, you know, all the tricky and dangerous manoeuvres. Now, oddly enough, this made her disguise even more effective because no one would be looking for a woman in an elite fighting force. So good on you, devs, mate, getting amongst it there. Anyway, Deborah gets stuck in in a major way as, as soon as she's deployed. At this point in the war, much of the fighting is taking place in New York, and that's where she's sent, getting stuck into skirmishes with the British here and there. She fights in the Battle of Tarrytown a few months later after she's enlisted, and it's during this battle, her first full-scale fight, that she is badly wounded. She gets shot twice in the thigh and gets a nasty gash across the forehead. When the battle is over and the wounded are being taken away... Poor old Deborah, she begs her comrades to just leave her there to die rather than to get taken away to a hospital. And they say, shut up, Robbo, you dumb bloody stooge. Obviously, you need the sawbone, so shut your trap and we'll get you there, mate. No worries. Now, obviously, she's crapping her dax. She's thinking that the doctor is going to get her trousers off to treat the musket wounds and get a, a whole lot more than he's expecting. Well, actually, no, I guess, I guess a whole lot less than he's expecting there, if we're going to be honest. But, you know, what does she do? What is she going to do about this? Well, what happens is this. After the doctor is, has patched up her forehead and is off... I guess, not sterilising his equipment or whatever doctors did back in those days, she legs it. She flees from the hospital as fast as she can, which, again, probably isn't all that fast as she's been shot twice in the leg. Uh, But once she's away and out of sight, she uses a pocket knife to dig one of the musket balls out and a sewing kit to patch herself back up. She can't get the other ball out, however, and as a result, her leg remains, you know, mildly stuffed, essentially, for the rest of her life. Anyway... After this, she cracks on with her army service and the time passes without great incident. She's never suspected of being a woman. You know, she's eating steaks with her fingers and wearing the same undies for days in a row. She's playing the part perfectly and she actually never, she doesn't get discovered for ages and ages and ages. Now, Due to her excellent service record and general good standing as a soldier, in April 1783, she is assigned as a personal aide of General John Patterson. Despite the fact that the war is all but over at this stage, the Continental Army is still up and about should the peace negotiations break down, which of course they don't, as the the Treaty of Paris is signed in September and the war officially comes to an end. Anyway... General Patterson, he is ordered down to Philadelphia to suppress a small rebellion of Patriot soldiers who weren't being paid on time. This is referred to today as the Pennsylvania Mutiny, and it's one of the reasons that Philadelphia isn't the capital of the United States. Anyway, Debs, she goes along with the general, and during her time in Philadelphia, she gets very, very sick. She gets very unwell indeed. Now, in the height of her fever, she's seen to uh, by a doctor named Barnabas Binney, who sounds, I have to say, like a mild, very mild villain from a kid's cartoon about pirates or something. Anyway, old mate Barnabas, he goes about treating poor Deborah, and in doing so, I don't want to get too, you know, rude about this sort of uh, sort of stuff here, but he finds bits where there shouldn't be bits, and no bits where there should be bits, and generally just the wrong sort of bits all over the shop for, you know, what he was expecting there. Now, Dr. Barnabas Binney, I do want you to remember his name here because he goes on to be a rock-solid bloke. He doesn't immediately go on and uh, to expose her to the top brass. Instead, he takes her home to his place where she can recover while being cared for by his wife and daughters. Now, she gets back into good nick while staying there with them, and while doing so, the Treaty of Paris is signed on the 3rd of September, and so the war ends. Now, Dr. Barney, he's got a good old think about what to do and ends up getting in touch with General Patterson. 
Barnabas tells Patterson that Robert Shirtlift is in fact a woman, knowing that the General and Deborah have a very good relationship. And uh, I have to say this as well. General Jonathan Patterson proves himself to be a very forward-thinking fellow because he doesn't follow the usual, usual procedure with dealing with women who are caught pretending to, to be men in the army. Generally, what would happen is this. Women who were exposed in this way were punished and treated in a pretty bloody terrible way, but not so with General Patterson. He publicly announces that Deborah's unrivaled achievements meant that she was under his personal protection and that she deserves an honourable discharge, which she is is duly given. In fairness, it is still important to remember that she was booted out of the army after being discovered, but it was as a proud and upstanding soldier and not as a humiliated and unfairly scorned victim. And that's where the story of Robert Shirtlift the soldier ends, with Deborah Sampson defying the odds and receiving an honourable discharge in October in 1783. So good on you, Debs. You bloody beat the system. You got out of there in one piece. So well, well bloody done to you, mate. After the war, with the war done and dusted, and with old mate Deborah out of a job, she settled down into what you might call a more orthodox situation for the time. Two years after her soldiering, she marries a bloke named Benjamin Gannett and has three kids with him, settling down in a, in a town called Sharon in Massachusetts. They didn't have a lot of cash, however. This is where things get a bit ugly because Deborah didn't get paid for her work as a soldier, despite the injuries she sustained, and the honourable discharge that she she received. She and Benjamin uh, scraped by, but in 1792, it was actually that bad that she had to do something about it. Her medical bills alone were enough to cause huge financial headaches for the family. So she goes to the state government of Massachusetts and said, Listen here, you blokes, I went and got shot up and carved up and all sorts during that bloody war, so cough up some of that cheddar for this chick right here. Now, after listening to this very reasoned argument, the government agreed to pay her what was owed and even included interest backdated to 1783. So this eased the squeeze a little bit for her and her family. Fair enough, good on you, Massachusetts. But it still wasn't enough in the long run because within 10 years, she's once again in financial trouble. She's not receiving a pension for her work as a soldier. Female soldiers basically never were. And so again, she goes and gives a big middle finger to the establishment and once again throws her hat into a ring that was, again, a different ring that had been up until this stage entirely dominated by blokes. She makes an entrance into the professional speakers circuit, of all things. By now, she's had a biography published about her, which meant that some people had actually already heard her story. And she set up a bunch of speaking gigs in 1802 to lecture about her experiences in the army, which went against the wishes of most of her family and friends because, again, this wasn't a woman's place at the turn of the 19th century. But our mate Deborah didn't give a crap about that. And she had some, you know, moderate success speaking to crowds of people around Massachusetts. Her lectures involved her rather mildly apologising for going against the traditional role of a woman in taking up arms, but... This ultimately might have been a bit of a piss take because after talking about stuff like that, she would leave the stage and then come back dressed in her old uniform to demonstrate, you know, complicated military drills and all that sort of stuff. So imagine that, a middle-aged mum marching up and down as well as chucking a rifle about. Yeah, it, it sounds fantastic. Anyway. This still wasn't enough to make ends meet for Deborah and her family, however. And so in 1804, none other than Paul Revere of the famous Midnight Ride wrote a letter to Congress on her behalf, and this worked. Before a year was out, Congress had approved her for the pension that was awarded to wounded soldiers, and things improved for her a lot after after she finally started to receive what she was due. She was able to pay her debts and live life comfortably enough. Now, Deborah Sampson, she died in Sharon on the 29th of April, 1827, at the age of 66. She wasn't a huge war hero. She didn't perform any, you know, acts of 
enormous bravery or valor or distinguish herself on the battlefield with notable acts of heroism or anything else like that. She was a bog standard soldier fighting alongside her mates, doing her bit to contribute to a cause that she thought was right. But what makes her special in that sense is that she had to give a very big but a very, very quiet get stuffed to the whole system just to go and dig bullets out of her own leg with a pocket knife all in the name of the fledgling United States. So good bloody on it. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Deborah Sampson, the soldier in the American Revolution, someone who went and fought like so many others did at the time for the United States, this fledgling country. And uh, someone who basically at every point of, of the way to do this had to take risks, break the rules, and just get it done in her own way. So for that, I, I'm not wearing a hat, but if I were, I would take it off. Deborah Sampson, you're a legend. Good on you. Going to wrap up the show as usual with all the normal boring announcements. We do have, a, nope, last week I said I wasn't going to say we, so I'm not going to say we. It is just me. It is It is just I. I do have a website for the podcast, halfhousehistory.net. It's there you can find everything you need to know about the show, previous episodes, what have you. Links to the Twitter page at Half Hast History without an O wouldn't fit. Very annoying. 16 letters, the name uh, of the podcast, and only 15 fits, so I did my best. It's there. I post up just general sort of stuff, little facts and little link- links to stuff that I find interesting throughout the week while I'm doing my reading, whatever else. So if you want to get across that, it's updated uh, more or less daily, I, I should say, with, uh, with things there. Um, I do have a Patreon as well if you want to chuck us a couple of bucks for, for me doing this. Certainly not an obligation whatsoever. I'm very, very flattered and humbled that people choose to do this, but uh, you can find the link there through the website. And it's been great to hear from a couple of listeners who have got in touch. Um, uh, Halfhousehistory at gmail.com is the best way to do it. And I'm still giving out stickers. I forgot to mention this the last couple of weeks, but I've still got stickers to give away. So if you want to get in touch with me, send me your address and I'll send you stickers free of charge. History at gmail.com is the way to get that done. Anyway, I'm going on and on a bit. The, the outro to podcasts, I don't even know if people even listen to this, to be honest. I, I usually don't. I usually skip over it, so I don't blame you for doing it as well. But if you're still here, thanks very much. It's great to have you along. We are going to close out the show, of course, with uh, a question posed on, uh, on Reddit here eh, by a Reddit historian. Reddit historian Chimney Hendricks has a question about the American Revolution. What caused John Paul Jones to quit Led Zeppelin and join the American Revolution? <laughs>